Well, good morning. I don't know about you, but I am really glad to be here today. And I'm really glad I'm here today to teach and not last week to teach. <laughs> I watched Ryan last week, and by the end of the first service, it looked like he'd been baptized. He was just drenched. I'm thinking, man, if that got to go through that next week, we're all in big trouble because this is a lot to drench. But today's cooler. Some of you skipped out last week because you thought it was going to be too hot. I'm glad you came back this week. You know, if you watch a group of children for a little while, eventually you'll notice that one of those children emerges as the leader. Doesn't have to be the oldest one. Doesn't have to be the biggest one. Doesn't have to be a boy. But one of those children will emerge as the leader, the one who tells the other kids, this is what we're going to do. This is the role you're going to play. This is where you stand. This is how we're going to do it. These are the rules for our game. One child emerges as the leader, and the rest of the children kind of naturally fall into line and do as the leader tells them to do. They follow the leader. But it's not just children who do that. Think about your workplace. If you've ever been part of a work team at work, where there hasn't been a designated leader, eventually someone around that group is going to emerge as the leader. Or maybe you're in a study group at school, and someone needs to lead that study group, and someone will emerge, and the rest will begin to follow. There is that natural order. We want a leader, and many are willing to follow. And that's what we want to talk about today. We're in a series called Find and Follow. If you've been around Keystone for any length of time at all, I hope you've begun to realize that our purpose is to help people find and follow Jesus. For some, it means coming to him, to find him in a new way maybe, maybe for the first time ever. For others, it's a new kind of relationship where we realize we need to follow after him and be more like him and grow closer to him over the course of our journey with Jesus. We want to help people find and follow Jesus. And wherever you are in that journey, whether you're still finding Jesus or you're just beginning to follow him or maybe you've been following him for a while, we want to help you take your next step wherever that next step takes you. And that's why I'm glad you're here today because I want to help you take that next step in finding and following Jesus. But to start to talk about following Jesus invariably raises issues for us. You see, for most of us, it's fine to follow Jesus until he asks us to go someplace we don't want to go or to do something we don't want to do. And then the whole idea of following Jesus isn't quite as attractive as it has been. The whole idea of following Jesus is okay as long as he takes us where we want to go and has us do what we want to do. But when he varies from that path, then we want to rebel. I think the real issue when it comes to following Jesus is control. The real issue when it comes to following Jesus is control. Who is in control? You see, most of us, maybe even all of us, like to be in control. We want to call the shots. We want to decide things. And following Jesus means we need to let him be in control. And that's the rub. That's the hard part. Because I have to let go and be willing to follow. That means I lose control. 
Are we willing to let go of our desire to be in control, to call the shots, to set the direction, to decide what we are going to do in every situation? Are we willing to trust Jesus? Trust him enough to let go of our control so that he can lead us. Which brings me to the big idea for today. To be a Jesus follower, we have to let him lead. It seems so obvious that if we're going to be a Jesus follower, we have to let him lead. And we're all about being a Jesus follower. The challenge comes with letting him lead. There's a remarkable incident that takes place in the Bible in the life, during the time of the life and ministry of Jesus when he was on this earth. It's coming toward the end of that time. It's nearly his time to go to the cross. But before that happens, this incident takes place and is recorded by all of the historians that wrote of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all talked about it. We're going to take a look at one of those the one written by Mark. And it's about a dinner, a woman, a bottle of perfume, and the disciple that didn't want to let Jesus lead. It's in Mark chapter 14, and it starts this way. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And for many of us, we have no idea what that means. We don't know what the Passover is. We don't know what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is. So let me give you just a little bit of context for this. The Jews had a number of very significant holidays and remembrances. The Passover is perhaps one of the most significant of them all because it takes them back in their history to when the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. And after 400 years, they labored under unbelievably cruel conditions by their Egyptian overlords. And finally, God raised up this guy named Moses and said, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and say in your best Charlton Heston voice, let my people go. <laughs> and Pharaoh's going to say, no way. And I'm going to send plague after plague after plague. And finally... There's going to be that moment when you need to be ready to go. So tell the people to take a year-old lamb, perfectly clean and unblemished, not a crippled lamb, not a defective lamb, and roast it. And collect the blood of that lamb and put some of it on the doorposts and across the top of your door on your house. Because on the night my angel comes he will pass over your house. But all the houses that don't have that blood, the firstborn is going to die. And I want you to prepare bread, unleavened bread. You don't have time for the yeast to do its work to cause the bread to rise. And you will have lamb and unleavened bread. And you will eat it standing up so that you are ready to go. And it happened just as they were told. The angel of death came that night. And the firstborn in every Egyptian house died. But in the homes of the people of Israel, where the blood was on the doorpost, the angel passed over that house, and no one died. And the Egyptians said, go, please, go. And the people of Israel were free. 
And every year on the anniversary of that event, they celebrate the Feast of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread as a reminder that God delivered his people. That continues even yet today. The Jews still celebrate the Feast of Passover. They still celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But for us, as Christ followers, it carries a different kind of meaning because, you see, Jesus is oftentimes referred to as the Lamb of God. And when he is nailed to the cross, when his blood stains the wood of the cross, we begin to realize that this Lamb of God has now been given so that we might have forgiveness of sin, so that we might live a new life, so that we might walk in freedom. Again, I don't know where you are in your journey with Jesus. I don't know if if you're new into that, if you're still finding your way to him. But I can tell you this, that your relationship with Jesus hinges on his sacrifice, on what he did that day on the cross. And that's where it starts. That's where you begin to follow Jesus. But there's an ominous element to this story as we continue reading. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said. Or the people may riot. You see, for three years, Jesus has been a thorn in the side of the flesh of the religious leaders. They've despised him. He's turned the people against him. He's attracted this huge following. And they don't know what to do with him except try to get him out of the scene. They want to kill him, but they're afraid of the people because Jesus has developed this enormous following. There are a lot of people. In fact, just a few days earlier, many, many people in Jerusalem had gathered along the street as Jesus entered riding on the back of a little donkey. And they put their coats in front of him and they put their palm branches in front of him and they said, Hosanna, the king of the Jews. And the religious leaders are saying, as much as we want to do away with this guy, we have to be careful because he's got an enormous following and we can't let him undo what we're trying to do. So they began to look for a way, a sly way, to capture Jesus and cause his death. Meanwhile, Jesus is going about his ordinary business. For him, he just continues on doing what he does. While he was in Bethany, Mark writes, reclining at the table at the home of a man known as Simon the leper, and let me just stop there for a second. Jesus is in Bethany. Bethany is a short walk to Jerusalem. You go up over the Mount of Olives, go down the other side, and you enter the gates of the city of Jerusalem. An hour maybe, to walk from Bethany to Jerusalem. And Jesus is there visiting, having dinner at the home of a guy who is, everyone knows as Simon the leper. Now, I will tell you that Simon is no longer a leper. I suspect that at some point in his journeys through Bethany, Jesus healed Simon of his leprosy. If Simon was still a leper, he wouldn't be in Bethany. He'd be out in the uh, outside areas. He was not allowed in the city. If he was still a leper, 
no one would be sitting down to have dinner with him. You avoided them. In fact, the lepers had to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that no one would be in danger of coming in contact with them. So it might be better to say Simon the former leper. But you know how labels are, right? This one stuck. Even today, he's a clean man. Everybody calls him, oh, Simon the leper. No. And they're reclining at table, which is so different for us. Because we sit, right? We sit on our chair. But here's a, here's a bit of an artist's conception of what it would be like to recline at table. The table is low. In fact, if you go to the Middle East today, you'll still sit at low tables. You don't recline anymore. You sit on a pillow. But the tables are low to the ground. There in Jesus' day, you would lean on your left arm. Your feet would be extended out behind you. And you would use your right hand to dip the bread into the meat, into the sauces, into the foods that you were eating. You would eat with your right hand. They were reclining at table. It's an ordinary meal. Jesus, Simon, the leper, and probably Jesus' disciples, and maybe even some men from the city are all there. And as they're reclining at the table, something extraordinary begins to happen. We read on. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, or strychnard. It's an Indian spice. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. This is unheard of for a couple of different reasons. First of all, this is a woman who is entering man's territory. My wife and I were in Jordan a number of years ago, and we were invited to the home of a Jordanian man for, for refreshments. We sat down on a pillow in the living room. His wife prepared the refreshments in their kitchen area. We never saw her. She never appeared. The husband went into the kitchen and brought the refreshments back out to us. She was invisible. And that's the way it was in Jesus' day. These were all men who were reclining at the table. There were no women at that table. These were all men. The women prepare the meal. They probably didn't serve the meal. Other men would have brought, servant, male servants would have brought the food in. But this woman comes in, and she comes to where the men are. She broke a cardinal rule of the culture. Women do not come to the table. And then she did something even more remarkable. She took an alabaster jar. It may have been something like the picture of this alabaster jar. A small, beautiful alabaster. They're, they're just this wonderful uh, device. They're, they're gorgeous to look at. And she took it. It was full of this spikenard perfume, this aromatic and extremely expensive perfume. And she broke the jar, and she began to pour the oil of perfume on the head of Jesus. If the men in the room weren't already astonished by her presence, they were now offended by her actions. And immediately... They begin to talk. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, 
Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. You can about imagine what these men were saying to this woman, some talking to themselves, others speaking directly to her, rebuking her, chastising her, criticizing her for what she is doing. And true, the perfume is extremely expensive, more than a year's wages. And true, it could have been helpful to give that to the poor. But I want to stop for a second. Because in Mark's account of this event, he just talks about all of the men who are present are offended and incensed by what's taking place. Another one of our historians, the gospel writer named John, he speaks of a particular individual who speaks into this situation. And what he says and what happens around this individual I think is very significant. So we're going to step out of Mark for a moment and go over to John. And in John we read, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who some of you may recognize and say, ah, that's the guy who betrays Jesus, right? Yeah, hang on. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. Now, up to this point, the stories are pretty similar, right, between Mark and John? Pretty much same content. Offense, should have sold it, give the money to the poor, it's worth a lot of money. But then John goes on. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So why was Judas so opposed to using this perfume on Jesus? Because if they had the money and it was in his pouch, he could pilfer a little now and then. He could take a little for himself. He could use it for the things he wanted to use it for. It really wasn't about feeding the poor. It was about making his life more comfortable. Now think about that for a moment when it comes to letting Jesus lead. When Jesus asks us to do something or go someplace that we don't like, we often try to find an acceptable excuse, like Judas did, like the disciples did. We're oftentimes looking for that acceptable excuse that gets us off the hook. But the truth is that oftentimes it hides our real reason for not wanting to go where Jesus is leading us. We're looking for the acceptable excuse. We should have sold this perfume and given the money to the poor so that I could keep some of it for myself, Judas says. So how does this work for you or for me? You feel this compulsion to take your next step with Jesus, and, and you even begin to think that maybe I ought to join a big idea group or I ought to find a spiritual mentor. But then the excuses start to come. And so when someone says, hey, come and join our group, or can we meet together over coffee and maybe grow together in our step with Jesus? We say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really busy. You know, I have a lot of work and family. and you know, Those are acceptable excuses. When reality is that I can't make a commitment because I'm not sure what 
the next step with Jesus is going to look like, and I'm afraid. But that doesn't sound very appropriate as an excuse. Or you begin to hear that there's a need for somebody to teach the children on a particular Sunday each month in just one of the sessions, just one session once a month, and they say, you could do that. And you say, oh, it's just not, that's just not in me. I can't do that. I, 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 don't, I don't like children. <laughs> when the real reason is, I like having flexibility on Sunday. I like being able to come when I want to come and view it online when I want to view it online. And if I agree to teach the children, I've got to be here like every month on that Sunday at that time. And I like my freedom. But that doesn't sound very good. And so we come up with an acceptable excuse. You've got a neighbor who's ailing. And maybe you ought to bring them a meal. Or maybe you could invite them to a Keystone event. And, and someone says, you can do that. I mean, you, you can reach out like that. And, and you go, well, no, nah, you know, I, I, we hardly know each other. When in fact, the real reason you don't want to do it is because what are they going to think about me if they know that I'm a Jesus follower? So we come up with excuses that sound good, that mask the real reason we don't want to let Jesus lead us. That's what Judas did. He came up with an excuse that hid the real reason. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to let him lead. You can't keep pushing it away. And then Jesus comes back and makes a comment that is extremely important for us. Jesus said, now we're back in Mark, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. It's a noble idea that the disciples are raising, that Judas raises, the idea of selling the perfume and giving the money to the poor. But Jesus said, look it, you do that, it's a one and done deal. The poor are always going to be here. You can always take care of them. You will always need to be taking care of them. You will always need to be helping them. Me, on the other hand, he said, I'm not here forever. He knew that in a few days, he was going to be beaten, ridiculed, hung on a cross, die, and buried. He knew what was coming up. And he said, I'm not always going to be here. But he also began to give them a glimpse of what was to come. And this is not what most of those disciples had signed up for. They had a perception of what would take place. Their idea is that Jesus was going to set up an earthly kingdom. They're going to overthrow Roman oppression and rule. And maybe they would have some of the leading positions in that earthly kingdom. That's what they were thinking. And Jesus now turns that on its head and said, that's not what I'm about. I am here to set up a spiritual kingdom, to change your heart, not to change your circumstance. And that was new to them. If you're going to be a Jesus follower, you have to let him lead, even when sometimes he takes you to places you don't want to go. 
Even when sometimes he asked you to do things that you weren't expecting to do. It didn't sit well with Judas, that's for sure. Mark goes on and says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas will have nothing to do with this talk of sacrifice and death. That's not why he was here. He was here because he wanted to see Roman oppression relieved. He would have gone into battle to do battle with Rome. He would have even died to do battle with Rome. But he was not prepared to die for the cause that Jesus was now talking about. And because he loved money more than anything else, he went and cut a deal and said, I will give him over to you if you will pay me. And the religious leaders who were the ones looking for that sly way to take Jesus were given on a silver platter the means of that. For 30 pieces of silver, Judas made a deal to turn over Jesus because he said, I will not follow where you want me to go. I do not want you to lead me there. We all find ourselves challenged by following Jesus. It's not easy for any of us because we like to be in control. We like to be able to call the shots. We like to be able to set the direction. We like to know what's going to happen and happen and happen because we like control. But to follow Jesus means we let go of that control. What is one area in your life that you need to let Jesus lead in? Just one. I mean, we've all got a bunch, right? We can only tackle one at a time. But what's one area in your life where you need to let Jesus lead you? Where you've been holding on to the control, holding on to the, the means by which you can keep this under your control? What's an area where you need to let go? Is it looking for a spiritual mentor? Joining a big idea group? Volunteering with children or youth? Is it restoring a broken relationship? Reaching out to someone that you know is hurting and offering them friendship and help and hope? What's one area, what's popping into your mind right now where you need to let Jesus lead you. Will you follow where he leads? Because you know that he knows what is best? Will you follow where he leads? Because you believe he always does what is right? Will you follow where he leads? Believing that he loves you and has good in store for you. To follow Jesus is to lay aside our excuses, both the ones that we think sound good and the ones that are deeply rooted within us. It's to lay aside all of our excuses and to lay aside our need to be in control of every situation. To follow Jesus is to let him lead. Not because it's easy, but because that's what it means to be a Jesus follower is that he leads and you don't. He directs 
and you don't. If you're a Jesus follower, what's that one area where this week you can let him lead? Would you stand, please, as we close in prayer? We thank you, Father, for this lesson which strikes probably all of us at a very real level. We do love to be in control. And yet we know that if we claim to be a Jesus follower, we have to let him lead. So, Father, I pray that in this week you will help us to let Jesus lead in our lives. Give us the courage to let go of the control need. And give us the help we need to trust Jesus so we might follow him to do what he would have us to do, to go where he'd have us to go, to be who he would have us to be. And we do this with gratitude for the help we know you will provide as we step out in faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Have a great week.